Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the exit of Governor Ron DeSantis from the Republican presidential primary race, which has always been dominated by Donald Trump, and now has only Nikki Haley left ahead of Tuesday's New Hampshire primary, which she is likely to lose. We'll discuss the rise and fall of Ron DeSantis with someone who pointed out over a year ago when DeSantis was riding high and campaign money was pouring in that there was much less to the candidate than meets the eye. Joining us is Michael Binder, professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida. His research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics and public opinion. He is the faculty director of the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. Then, with the January-February issue of Mother Jones out today that explores all the aspects of the American oligarchy in depth, we'll speak with Michael Mechanic, a senior editor at Mother Jones magazine and author of Jackpot, How the Super-Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. We'll discuss his article at Mother Jones, Global Millionaires Say Yes to Taxing Extreme Wealth Poll Fines, and how much of a plutocracy and less of a democracy we have become in this new Gilded Age. Then finally, we will speak with Erica Payne, a founder and president of The Patriotic Millionaires and the author of The Practical Progressive, How to Build a 21st Century Political Movement, and co-author of Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. We'll discuss a shocking new poll by The Patriotic Millionaires revealing that support for higher taxes on wealth is popular with millionaires across G20 countries, with 260 millionaires and billionaires having signed a letter demanding world leaders increase their taxes, coinciding with the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland. The polling is part of the Proud to Pay More report, which profiles some of the world's wealthiest people and explains why they support higher taxes on themselves. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. Please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Michael Binder, a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics and public opinion, and he's the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Binder. Thanks for having me again. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And you were the first person I talked to that sort of exploded the myth of Ron DeSantis as being a real serious challenger. And this was over a year ago when he was riding high in the polls. He just had a successful election in Florida and he was making you know record amounts of fundraising rolling in. 
and uh, the press were all suggesting he was the real challenger to Trump. But you told me at, at that time that there was much less to that meets the eye when it comes to this candidate. And boy, has that proven to be true. So what went wrong with him? Or <laughs> I guess maybe there's more than one thing. But what would you attribute the rise and fall of Ron DeSantis to? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, the first is it was always going to be a challenge for anybody to go up against Donald Trump. And I know if you're looking at this objectively and you look at Donald Trump and his behaviors and what happened at the end of his last term and, and all of those things, you, you might shake your head and be like, what are people thinking? But the fact of the matter is he has a large segment of the Republican base that's exceptionally supportive of him. Uh, a large number of Republicans believe that the election was stolen and he didn't actually lose in 2020. So in some senses, he's viewed almost within the Republican primary as the de facto incumbent. So going up against an incumbent is always challenging. So all of the candidates were, were up against it a little bit. But even given that, I, I think DeSantis's problems run much deeper than mistiming his chance to run. And I think we saw a little bit of that over the course of this campaign and his inability to connect with voters shown through his inability to genuinely have a, a, a real message to delay that was it was positive. He couldn't really put forth anything new or, or exciting. And I'm not sure how much that changes going forward, even though it sounds like he's gearing up to run again in 2028. But when you first saw him on the national stage, he he sort of presented himself as sort of a, you know, a bit of a, like a tin-pot Mussolini from Florida. You know, he was always flanked by these big burly policemen, and he was always talking about really sort of nasty, angry things like the wokeness and woke this and woke that. And some of his his statements trying to sort of out-Trump Trump were pretty outrageous. And, of course, he, you know, he brings in the six-week abortion ban. He vows to shoot suspected drug cartel members stone-cold dead, not to mention going to war against Mexico, railing against the woke mind virus. So how far to the right is this guy? Is he, is he really a kind of wannabe dictator in the way that people are afraid Trump is. He came across as trying to out-Trump Trump, but in the worst possible way, in that kind of tough guy, wannabe dictator persona. Yeah, and and I think if, you, if you're asking me to think about what is in this man's soul and is he really this guy that he portrayed himself to be over the last year and a half, uh, the answer is, I don't think so. And I think that's part of his problem. I don't know that he is genuinely believing all the policies that he's put forth, except for the fact that I think he believes those policies are resonating with the base of the Republican Party that could have helped him get elected to the nominee. That, I think, is where he falls short. And that's something that I think all candidates struggle with is, do I pander to what my perceived perception of what the base wants is, or do I put forth 
my ideas, my policies, and if the base is along for it, great. But if not, I'm going to be genuine to who I am. And I and I say that not because he failed spectacularly nationally or because some of the policies he put forth, you know, I don't think are good for people. It's because what he did in his first year in office, he was a much more moderate governor. He ran almost as a moderate. And the policies he had in 2019 were exceptionally different from everything he's done since then. And what changed was he saw a window to the Republican nomination nationally. And so if you're going to change your policies based on what you think your next office is, I think voters inevitably can see through those types of things. But why didn't he understand that voters with a choice between the real Trump and the wannabe Trump are going to vote for the real Trump? Well, there, yeah, they are always going to vote for the real Trump over the wannabe Trump. And I think he was looking at this like many others do. And they look at Trump and they're staring at 90 plus indictments, the the craziness on, on Twitter or X, the the all of the stuff that comes with Trump that a large number of Republicans say they don't want or don't like about him. He was trying to present himself as well. I'll give you all the stuff you like about Trump but I won't do all the crazy stuff. And and that's true, right? Like no, nobody's accusing Ron DeSantis of having started an insurrection or, or misogyny or assaulting women or any of those things. But he also lacks the charisma and the innate quote unquote Trumpness that makes Donald Trump who he is. Well, but his campaign apparently was on the inside, was absolutely fraught with dysfunction. And it seems that the first big mistake he made was back in 2019 when he fired the political operative Susie Wilds. And I don't know what happened there. You know, he said that apparently that she was accused of leaking a fundraising document. But was that to do with the fact that DeSantis's wife was kind of running the campaign and, you know, almost like a, almost like a Nancy Reagan or a Lady Macbeth even? Yeah, I, I certainly think all those things you said are true. And Susie Wiles is is Jacksonville based. And, you know, I've come across her a little bit and she got Rick Scott elected. She got DeSantis elected the first time in exceptionally tight races. And yeah, firing her pushed her into the Trump camp. And she did a lot to make sure that DeSantis didn't get the nomination. But it's not just her. And you alluded to this. His inner circle is exceptionally small. And it gets smaller by the day. And it is essentially him and Casey. And Casey, that, Casey being his wife. Casey, Casey DeSantis being his wife. And that is that is difficult to run a national campaign with that. You you need to have more people. You need to have people that are willing to tell you no. They're willing to stand up to you and not just say, hey, and maybe even have done this before. While she's great in front of a camera and she's, you know, a local news personality in her quote unquote previous life, she has no experience running national campaigns and neither did he. And, And I think you saw that in a lot of places. So given that he, you know, ran against Trump but didn't really run against him the same way that Nikki Haley and all the rest of them except for Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson don't even want to criticize the guy. If they do, they do it in a very milquetoast way. That's always crazy. I mean, there's never been a political campaign where candidates refuse to criticize the front runner. I mean, 
what was going on and what still is going on here? And then at the end of the day, DeSantis turns around and uh, endorses Trump. Well, they certainly aren't successful campaigns that go unchallenging of the front runner. And we've and we've seen that and we're going to see it either on Wednesday when Haley drops out or several weeks from now when she gets pasted in South Carolina and she drops out. That being said, what these candidates are looking at is a base of the electorate that loves Donald Trump. And they are and you saw this when DeSantis's numbers in the polls early on in this race before he got in were sky high. They started to tank when Trump went after him because the Trump supporters followed the lead of their leader. Those are the things that all of these candidates watched and they were trying to walk a tightrope where they could attract the Trump voter, but not really alienate them at the same time by saying bad things about Donald Trump. And it's exceptionally hard to do. It proved unsuccessful. And Christian Asa Hutchinson did not show any success in continuing to rail against Donald Trump either. So there were different uh, efforts to undo Trump. None of them have been successful in the Republican primaries. And I think with Ron DeSantis, his quick circling around and endorsing Trump is really much less about endorsing Trump in 2024 than it is trying to avoid his wrath and his all of those voters that desperately support him in 2028. So this guy has not learned his lesson. He really thinks he's going to be a viable candidate next time if either Trump gets the presidency or Biden does. I think so. And and the question is, he was an interesting candidate and he had tons of money. He was able to raise it, but he wasn't raising it from small donors across the country. Like if you think back, you know, Howard Dean raising five bucks from all those people, you know, or Bernie Sanders more recently on the left, or even Nikki Haley in early on. But what has fueled his campaign was big money donors. Now, are those big money donors two years from now? Because really, that's all you've got if you're really serious about 2028. You've got to be going in 2026. Are they going to have the short-term memory to say, hey, okay, I'm going to forget about last time. You're really the guy. Or are they going to remember how poorly he did in Iowa when he literally spent months there talking to everybody, shaking everybody's hand, but was still unable to connect? Uh, that's the trick. I don't I mean, I imagine that voters will be much kinder to to him having him run four years from now than the big money donors might be, because I think they might be a little more strategic in where they invest. Right. One hundred and fifty million dollars down the drain. That's not a good uh, calling card, is it? It's really not. And, you know, Nikki Haley is going to have not that much, but close to that much down the drain when she loses, too. All right. But what about the now Florida governor, of course, now he goes back to his day job. What do the Florida voters think of him? I mean, for example, he's appointed some terrible people and taken over universities, put in really idiotic ideologues, all these sort of book burners and all this crazy stuff that he identified in this anti-woke crusade. But one of the more dam damaging things is that you have an elderly population in Florida and yet the, the top public health official that he appointed is a complete quack. And he's, you know, he's urging 
Florida residents, including elderly residents, not to get vaccinated. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really ironic considering at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, he was out front pushing elderly to get vaccinated, you know, hyping the fact that Florida was so good at vaccinating our elders and taking care of that population. And again, it's changed dramatically because he viewed a large section of that Republican primary base as not wanting that. And he saw that as an avenue. I, I don't see that changing necessarily. Uh, but what I do see is I see him maybe not taking as much of a front and center role as he did last legislative cycle. Currently, the state legislature is in session in Tallahassee. They are until March 8th. He's been gone in all essentially gone and for all the committee weeks leading up to it. Uh, and I don't know that he's going to get particularly involved again going forward. He is a lame duck governor. He's term limited out. So in 2026, there'll be you know, a new election and there's a bunch of Republicans that are jockeying for position there. And I imagine you're, start, you're going to start seeing, particularly this legislative session, some legislators, state senators, state House members, you know, standing up on their own, uh, maybe taking a little bit of, of their own ideas and trying to get those passed so that they can stand out when the primary comes around in two years. And what about the Democrats? They've always... Uh, in Florida, they've had so many shooting themselves in the foot situations going back to the butterfly ballot. And then uh, then in, I think it was the last election that brought Rick Scott into the Senate, they had a really flawed ballot, which would have probably made the difference both in the Senate and the governor's race, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah, no, they've, uh, the, the Florida Democratic Party is, is under some new leadership. Nikki Freed, former contestant for the gubernatorial race in 2022. She failed in the primary to Charlie Crist, a former Republican, right. but she's taken over control of the party. And really the cupboard was bare. They had no money. They had no infrastructure. And she's starting essentially from the ground up. Now, that being said, the Democrats can, can point to some small wins uh, in Jacksonville, for example, back in the spring, we had a Democrat win the mayor's seat for the first time in a while. There was a special election just last Tuesday down in Orlando that saw a Democrat win by a couple of points. So it's not like it's a complete absence of Democrats in the state. It's just that at the state level, party registration has changed so much in the last five or 10 years. It's really difficult to see really successful statewide candidates winning. Um, I don't see it happening for, for several election cycles going forward. So this important state then, like along with Texas, is is about as red as as you can see into the future. Yeah, for sure. I, I liken us to Ohio, a state that used to be an important battleground state, but now is firmly Republican. And there there's several reasons for it. One of them that I don't think gets enough attention is immigration. And I don't necessarily mean immigration from South and Central America within country migration. So older retirees that have been coming to Florida literally for generations. The difference is the political makeup of those older retirees today in 2023 and 2024, they look much, much more Republican than they did 30 and 40 years ago. 30 and 40 years ago, you had a mix of former union folks. There was a mix of Democrats and Republicans. So they would move down and they would perpetuate the purpleness of the state. 
But now all those folks moving in are almost exclusively Republicans because older white folks in this country tend to be so Republican. And I think that's something that has changed not only the makeup of Florida, but the states where these folks are emigrating from, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, a lot of those Republicans are leaving those states and coming down here. So it's making us redder, but some of those states in the Northeast and the cent- and North Central United States bluer. Well, Marco Bender, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Have a good one. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Bender, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics and public opinion, and he's the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with a senior editor at Mother Jones Magazine about their new issue just out that explores all aspects of the American oligarchy in depth. Yeah, I'm a good loser, born to be that way. This dog ain't never had his day. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Mechanic, who's a senior editor at Mother Jones Magazine and the author of Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. And he has an article at Mother Jones, Global Millionaires Say Yes to Taxing Extreme Wealth Poll Fines. And he is an editor and contributor to the new January-February issue of Mother Jones, which is devoted to the subject and titled American Oligarchy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Mechanic. Thanks again. It's really good to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And uh, finally, the O word is being used, thank God, because you could make the case, I don't know whether you agree with me, but I don't know that we can describe ourselves anymore as an as a democracy or an oligarchy. I mean, aren't we somewhere in between? And of course, history shows us that oligarchy comes and democracy goes. There's a cycle there going back to the original Gilded Age, for example. So where would you say we stand now in this flux between oligarchy and democracy? Well, we are really, you know, on the fence as far as you know, being able to save what we have here. Um, you know, the U.S. system has always been under the sway of wealth to some degree. I mean, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson had a big debate about this, whether aristocracy was going to take over in America and reign. And uh, John Adams was very worried about this, and rightly so, because he said, you know, money rolls up like a snowball and accumulates in families. And, you know, those families start to have more and more clout over the workings of the republic. And that's what we've seen. Um, it was the case in the, in the first Gilded Age. Then we kind of, um, as one of my very wealthy sources in my book said, knocked over the anthill. And then the ants started coming back. And now they built their, you know, their fortress again. And so it's not, you know, it's different from the Russian oligarchic system in which wealth 
the, you know, the, the wealth of the society is literally sectioned off. You can have steel and you can have minerals and so forth. But in our society, the wealthy kind of overtake they, is regulatory capture. So they sort of overtake the government. They call the shots in government. They decide who's going to get elected and who's not to some degree. And we're on the brink of, you know, another oligarchic administration, frankly, if that takes place. You mean if Trump comes back? That's what I'm getting to, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, his, his one... first, you know, his first, uh, his first administration was full of, you know, billionaires and doing things in billionaires' interests, so. Right. Well, there's one U.S. senator that's taking on the oligarchy, Sheldon Whitehouse, and he makes the point that the oligarchs in this country could not sell their horrible ideas in elections through the legislative or the executive branch or both. So they've targeted the judicial branch. And can you make the case, at least I think you can, that there has been a plutocratic capture of the United States Supreme Court and much of the judiciary? Well, I think that's right. I mean, you know, it's the Republican takeover, the conservative takeover of the courts has actually been going on for decades. It's a it's a long time project. And um, we're just seeing it at the Supreme Court level more recently. Uh, and that's really problematic because, you know, some of these views really do not represent what the people of America want. Uh, but I would I would argue that there is really capture of of elections and, and that sort of thing as well, because, you know, you look at you look at what happened what right when, we, you know, Joe Biden took over and won the House and the Senate. But it was such a narrow majority that really those great hopeful reforms that Biden really tried to get them through. There was there was so much language in, say, the original Build Back Better bill that was just very, very empowering to the middle class. And it all got killed. And it got killed because there just wasn't there. You know, we didn't have enough of a majority or the Democrats didn't, I should say, um, to not be foiled by a couple of you know, moderate Democrats. Well, but were those two moderate Democrats, Manchin and Cinema, either in the thrall or in the pocket of oligarchs? Well, with Cinema, you know, she single-handedly uh, prevented prevented the repeal of the, um, the carried interest rule. And there's only one, you know, there's only a small sector that benefits from that rule. It's the hedge funders. It's the private equity people. Uh, it's the big real estate firms and so forth. And she clearly was influenced by them, very clearly was influenced by them to to reject that. It was it was all on her. And this is really the most absurd tax break probably you know, almost ever. Right. So let's talk about this January, February issue of Mother Jones, which is devoted to the American oligarchy. You mentioned the Russian oligarchy. What's the difference? I mean, there are more oligarchs in Russia, but as the system works, it's actually a, it's a, a mafia state regulated by a crime boss who regulates the oligarchs who operate in many ways as cutouts, you know, in the intelligence language, because Putin, of course, being a former KGB officer, basically, but after the collapse of communism, everybody sort of, there was a, a brutal scramble in what they call the Wild East, and a bunch of oligarchs just captured different industries. So 
The difference is that it took decades, if not centuries, in the United States for oligarchic families to capture big chunks of the economy, whereas it happened overnight in Russia. Well, they've been doing it, yeah, in America, they've been doing it over time. And sort of the, you know, it's, it's not like the Russian system, as I mentioned before. It's, um, it's a system where the, the very rich get so, they get too big to fail, and they are really intertwined with the government. In fact, there's a couple pieces in our package that kind of get at that. Um, Abby Vesuelas uh, did a great piece about how, you know, the Bezoses and the Musks of the world can come in and just extract wealth from a community and make demands on it and kind of take over the government in a way. Um, it, it's, you know, in, in Putin's Russia, everybody's sort of, you know, Putin calls the shots, the oligarchs have to get in line. Here, it's a little bit more like the politicians get in line and the billionaires call the shots. I mean, if you look mm -hmm. at look at Elon Musk, you know, he's so, he, he makes his money from government subsidies and contracts, a lot of it. And he provides such essential services now for the government that they really can't sanction him. Um, I mean, that came up that came up with this Wall Street Journal piece on his alleged drug use, and all the you know the investors and government officials who work with him were very worried about this. But you know they're not going to knock him out of his CEO positions or, or sanction him because they need him. Right. They depend on him to get supplies to the space station and to you know the satellite network and so forth. Right, and it's equally true of the Pentagon. You know, you know, a soldier would get kicked out of the service for smoking dope, but the, uh, this big contractor, along with Peter Thiel and others, who have these incredibly lucrative Pentagon contracts, I mean, it got so bad that uh, that Musk decided that he wanted to help Russia and not and hurt Ukraine at one point, where he he literally sabotaged an Ukrainian military initiative in the Black Sea. So. Musk is described as a petulant billionaire or a petulant oligarch, but he wields an enormous amount of influence. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, but we should get we should get sort of to the the crux of this package, which was sort of inspired by you know this chase of Russian assets after Russia invaded Ukraine. You know, so trying to seize the yachts of billionaires and of these oligarchs and. Uh, their bank accounts and so forth. And it becomes clear when you start tracking that illicit wealth that the money trail takes you right back here to the United States. So that is sort of like act one of our four-part, four-act drama here. Uh, it was written by senior writer Tim Murphy. And it's just a fantastic sort of lead essay that that lays out the landscape for the whole package. So... If they've captured the oligarchy, have captured the ju judiciary, and you can see the Supreme Court is now literally doing a major power grab, and they're following the dictum of Stephen Bannon to deconstruct the administrative state, and it's going to have absolutely catastrophic uh, consequences, and they've already, in the West Virginia versus the EPA decision, already tipped their hand. But if you go back to Citizens United, it's almost like a self-licking ice cream, isn't it? They choose cases. It's called Supreme Court shopping. They chose this obscure case about a documentary about Hillary Clinton called Citizens United, and they blew that into this major gift to the oligarchy. So how does, how does the system work? We know that these two shameless uh, whores on the Supreme Court, 
Thomas and Alito love to hang out with billionaires. But how, how does that relationship work and translate into major changes in the laws uh, that empower and reward the oligarchy? Well, these, you know, these conservative appointees to the court have always been sort of skeptical of, of, uh, of some, you know, of the, of the administrative state of the idea that, that uh, non-elected officials could make decisions. But, you know, the fact is that when you're, when you're in taking a law that's made by Congress and putting it into action, you need experts who actually know what they're doing. And that's sort of what they call the administrative state. It's like people who have spent a whole careers studying and doing these things. I mean, it, you, you really can't function without an administrative state. And if, you know, the, the Trump administration is promising to just gut it. And I don't know what that means. I mean, it means bad things, essentially, for the ability of the U.S. government to really accomplish much of anything. And that may be the point, in fact. I mean, you go back to the Grover Nordquist's uh, dream of strangling the government in a bathtub. Um, it becomes this very libertarian world where, you know, the government just provides military defense and corporations can do whatever they want. Um, and that's sort of the direction, frankly, that we're headed. I mean, there are parts of this this package that sort of flick at that. And those are the, really the terrifying parts. Uh, I mean, one one thing I would say about this package that I enjoy so much, I mean, I've been at Mother Jones 14 years. We've done all sorts of packages about all sorts of things. And this has got to be one of my favorite. Um, I, I mean, it made me laugh out loud. It made me terrified. It entertained me. It informed me. It, it's full of history. It's full of culture. Um, and one one piece I found terrifying I want to just bring up is uh, Hannah Leventova's piece about the sort of movement against woke, so-called woke capitalism. And it's it's very revealing because, you know, the, all these red states have been passing laws saying our pension funds are no longer allowed to consider environmental and social and governance factors in their investment decisions. And... Like, where does that come from? Um, you know, part of it is this sort of anti-woke thing that Ron DeSantis was spitting around. But it also comes from Vivek Ramaswamy and Peter Thiel, who started a fund called Strive. And it's sort of a backlash to the, uh, the, the what, what very many Americans support is to like, have corporations that are more res socially responsible. Um, and so they started a fund that essentially all it invest in is things like oil companies and you know woke has become in the in the space of a few years a dirty word when it used to be a positive thing uh so these guys basically for their own profit are pushing states to pass these laws which in fact when you think about it are anti-free market they're restricting competition by mm -hmm. not allowing states to invest in in these funds which do just as well as other funds by the way Right, so Peter Thiel, first of all, he bought a U.S. senator, J.D. Vance, and he is actively cynical, proudly cynical, wants to pollute and extract, rape and pillage, and leave this planet as a smoking ruin, except for New Zealand, where he's got a bunker to ride out, or, in fact, him and Elon Musk can get on a, a rocket and go to Mars, right? Isn't that... 
the way these guys see it? I suppose so. In fact, actually, there's a fun piece in this package about billionaires trying to disrupt death. And in fact, coming up with trust mechanisms so they can be frozen and wake up sometime in the future and still have all their money. <laughs> so how, how are they going to live if the apocalypse comes? Is because, you know, a part of the cynicism of, of the oligarchy is to divide working people against each other and, and, and use dog whistles and racial divisions so that the average working and middle-class people won't recognize what they have in common with each other because they're being artificially divided. And you've got these propaganda outfits like Fox News that keep you know, driving these wedges. So that's the, the sort of MO of oligarchic power and their handmaidens in the, in the GOP. And, of course, culture wars, uh, and you mentioned wokeness. I mean, that's all they offer. But these are tools that distract and divide, aren't they? They are. Um, and, you know, part of it is just, in fact, you know, I, I think about human beings and their instincts as hoarders, right? And the people that the people that manage to get a certain amount of wealth in our society and that want to just continue to hoard that's what they're that's what they're focused on and getting everything else out of the way. Um, you know, I, I think you get back to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said corporations are people. Well, then a corporation that is only interested in maximizing profit. Is that a good person? One has to ask, right? Mm -hmm. Not the kind of person you'd ever want to hang out with. Well, just in closing, though, is there an antidote? I mean, if the oligarchs have captured the judiciary and they're in the process of capturing the legislative branch and the, and the executive branch, that's pretty grim. But is there any way at a cultural level that we can change our attitude towards them? First of all, these people don't pay taxes, most of them, a lot of them. And secondly, why do we admire these people? I mean, part of Trump's success for getting white working class angry voters to vote for him was that he came across as this rebellious you know, no holes barred billionaire, all of which, was, of course, was fraudulent. But so many people are in the thrall of rich people and all of the, you know, tabloids and all of the stupid TV stuff is Kardashian worship. Is there any way that we can, as a culture, start saying, no, you know, these people, we're f subsidizing them, you know, and they're trying to destroy what's left of a government uh, for their own ends, and we'll end up absolutely powerless and uh, breathing foul air, drinking polluted water, and contaminated food. Well, you were talking about divide, the, the divisions. And I think what you see in any society where there's great wealth inequality, as there is in the U.S., things become destabilized. And it actually makes sort of the public more vulnerable to, to sort of... <sighs> False populist ideas, you know, the, the, the you know, Trumpism is uh, I, I interviewed a guy named uh, Nick Hanauer, who is all he's a rich guy, but he's always warning about inequality because of the pitchforks are going to come right the pitchforks. I said, well, what are the pitchforks? What what form the pitchforks take? And he said, well, they're not coming. They're already here. You know, it's Trumpism. It's this division in our society. It's this societal breakdown. It's this siloing. Uh, and all these things are really stemming from wealth inequality. 
And when the people in power uh, are just trying to hoard as much as they possibly can for their own self-interest, that just makes things worse. If you look at any society where fascism has come, come in, it's because you have people who feel like they're not getting their fair share and they're, they're resentful. And there's a lot of that in the U.S. It's sort of boiling under the surface. You know, we, we talk about the stock market, but most people don't own stock. Um, most people are just getting by. Half of the nation is barely getting by. And, you know, it's that we hear, you know, in the media, we hear mostly about the top 20 percent who are doing, you know, reasonably well. Um, so we've seen kind of because of, you know, this American oligarchy, we've seen a great destabilization. And I don't know that there is an, an you know, an antidote here. You know, you know, you could, you could change the tax system, but it's not going to happen in our current situation politically in, in Washington. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to enact new taxes, and it's probably going to be worse if uh, Trump comes back to power. You know, his signature achievement was cutting taxes for the wealthy, essentially. Well, Mark, a mechanic, I thank you for joining us. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. And just everyone should just go to motherjones.com. Check out this package. It's really fantastic. And again, I may speak with Michael Mechanic, who's a senior editor at Mother Jones Magazine and the author of Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. And he has an article at Mother Jones, Global Millionaires Say Yes to Taxing Extreme Wealth, Poll Fines. And he is an editor and contributor to the January-February issue of Mother Jones, just out, titled... American oligarchy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing a shocking new poll by the patriotic millionaires revealing that support for higher taxes on wealth is popular with millionaires across G20 countries with 260 millionaires and billionaires having signed a letter demanding world leaders increase their taxes, coinciding with the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland. See, Mr. Gibbs, either you bring the water to L.A., or you bring L.A. to the water. How are you going to do that? By incorporating the valley into the city. Simple as that. How much are you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? No, I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Erica Payne, the founder and president of The Patriarch Millionaires and the author of The Practical Progressive, How to Build a 21st Century Political Movement, and the co-author of Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. Welcome to Background Briefing, Erica Payne. Thank you so much, Ian. Nice to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Erica. And if you wouldn't mind just giving us a brief description of who the Patriotic Millionaires are and what they stand for. Sure. The Patriotic Millionaires is a group of high net worth um, started in America. We have a few hundred members in America. We are deeply concerned about the destabilizing level of inequality in the country and the concentration of wealth and power in an increasingly small group of people. So we focus our attention on trying to reform democratic capitalism so that it actually delivers the results that you need for a stable and prosperous society. We work on wages, taxes, and political power. 
And you have organized 260 millionaires and billionaires to sign a letter directed at political leaders who attended the recent World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, Switzerland. And the title of your report there is Proud to Pay More. And many of the signers, uh, of course, are millionaires and billionaires, but some are people that our audience would recognize, uh, Brian Cox, for example, who played uh, plutocrat billionaire uh, Rupert Murdoch in the, he was the fictional billionaire Logan Roy in the HBO's uh, successful series Succession, and many others, Abigail Disney and others. So your emissary, if you will, to Davos was Marlene Engelhorn, who's an Austrian heiress and the co-founder of Tax Me Now. She took this letter with her to Davos, and what was the response? Well, listen, I think the response is the same thing that we have seen over the last decade um, or more since we started this work, which is that people are increasingly concerned about the structure of our economies, not just in the United States, but around the world. What's happening here is very similar to what's happening in other places, which is the wealthiest people in these countries are spending their money to gain more political power, and they're spending their political power to gain more money. And in the process, they've destabilized basically the entire world, and they've broken the social contract, and people are suffering mightily, and they're really ticked off. And they're not going to take it anymore. And here's this gathering of elites, you know, who all kind of, the half of them pretend like they care about climate change, and then they fly their private jets to Davos to sit around and basically have a circular session about how fabulous they all are. And then they walk out and they haven't fixed anything. And um, I mean, every single person in that room has either caused the problems we are trying to solve or have exacerbated the problems that we are trying to solve. And so the idea about going to Davos is basically just going directly to the people who are screwing up life for millions and millions and hundreds of millions of people around the globe and say, look, get your head out of the sand. This is not going to end for you well either. Well, what came out of Davos was, at least according to CNBC, is doing very softball interviews with American business industry and banking leaders like Jamie Dimon. It was appalling how they all sort of said, oh, Trump's not a problem. He's be fine. And by the way, he got it right on NATO, on China, on immigration. That's just what I'm quoting Jamie Diamond. So these same people would be perfectly happy to have, you know, another four years of Trump and possibly the end of American democracy. Well, and I mean, listen, American democracy has been under threat for a long time. And Trump basically walked, there's a, there's a move be when Harry met Sally um, that that you may remember. And there's this scene where Harry is telling his um, friend at the ball game that his wife is cheating on him. And his friend says, well, you know, infidelity is just a symptom of a bigger problem. And Harry says, yeah, well, that symptom is screwing my wife. And it's kind of the same concept, which is we have created the perfect preconditions for an authoritarian leader Trump with a, a lot of personal charisma and, you know, a background as a TV reality show walked into the perfect preconditions of. A, and, and so, you know, he took advantage of it. And it's not just I'll tell you this. Donald Trump could die tomorrow. And if we do not fix the underlying dynamics of inequality and profound suffering 
for, you know, call it 30 to 40% of our people who just cannot make their lives work no matter how hard they work. Trump will come in or someone just like Trump will come in. The problem, yes, Donald Trump is a problem. The real problem is how we have structured democratic capitalism so that it is way, way, way more capitalism and capture than it is democracy. And that's the problem that we need to solve, or we're going to be in this exact same spot with somebody else a few years from now. And in terms of the nature of capitalism, particularly Wall Street capitalism, where the economy is continually more and more financialized, I believe it's close to 70% now of the economy is financialized, at least in the days of the robber barons, they produced goods and services. It seems that this modern capitalism, at least the Wall Street version of it, is all about extracting wealth and not creating wealth, making money out of money and you know high speed trading and all of this other stuff and hedge funding and you know stripping assets and is there any discussion about the nature of modern capitalism and how not that I'm defending the rubber barons of the 19th century but as i say at least they produce things i mean to an extent ian i think it's kind of tomato tomato neither one isn't a very effective way to structure a stable society. Um, and our and our entire point is that you can have both democracy and capitalism, and they can be, you know, partners in, in, in the human endeavor, but we've just got to structure it so it makes a little more sense. I mean, the way that we currently have it structured, I want to emphasize, a lot of people don't know this, the minimum wage, the wage floor, think about a floor, a floor has got to hold up the rest of the economy. The minimum wage in the United States of America is $7.25 an hour. That's one problem. The second big problem is, is that every single dollar that a wealthy person makes is worth more than every single dollar that a working person makes because of the tax code. So we have literally mathematically created a situation where there is no where we will go except for to a more unequal system. And so every single day, we are becoming more and more unequal. We are already at 100-year highs, um, and the whole society is about to fall apart. And so if, 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 if these capitalists in Davos want to keep on having customers to buy their products and, you know, to take care of their children and to do all the other things um, that regular people in this society do, they've got to restructure how we do this. You've got to raise wages to something someone can actually live on, and you need to remove the undue preferences that the wealthiest people in the country get in the tax code. The end. Well, of course, the opposite is happening now with the new good Christian head of the House, the new speaker, Mike Johnson. Uh, his first act was to tie uh, money for Ukraine and Israel and and Taiwan to cutting the very enforcement that Biden was able to get through to the IRS so that they could collect more taxes. And we've learned that the unit that got the extra funding already, just in last year alone, brought in $520 million from tax cheaters, wealthy tax cheaters. And that's the first priority of Mark Johnson's. I mean, you know, how could you be a good Christian? Remember, the Bible says it's easy for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Well, this is exactly right. And listen, the um, so the, I mean, they brought a bill to the floor. The very first bill the Republican Congress brought to the floor was a bill that would cut the IRS additional funding that was specifically directed to go after the wealthiest tax cheats in the country who have robbed, according to Trump's IRS commissioner, have cost us $1 trillion. So here the Republican Congress comes in and the very first most important thing they think they want to do is to cut the funding to the IRS that is designed to go get the money that the richest people in the country owe us already. So if you want to know where somebody's priorities are, look at that. I'll also tell you we're look in the middle of a, you know, so-called compromise bill right now in the house that ties the child tax credit which helps lift people out of poverty to a bunch of unnecessary corporate tax cuts. And so the way the news media covers it is they're like, oh, everybody got about half and half. So half for the kids, half for the corporations. There is no planet on which multinational corporations in this country need another tax cut. And so the idea that the only way we can gain the political votes necessary to help children who do not have enough to eat is to hand another tax break to a corporation, I think that is immoral and economically preposterous. So why then do we put up with this? You would think that the average working and middle class American who pays their taxes, they've got to be incensed that the wealthies and the plutocrats and these petulant plutocrats like uh, Elon Musk and others that demand so much headline and you've got all the wealth worshipping of the Kardashians and all this stuff. Why are we swayed? Why, as a culture, why aren't we in revolt against this unequal outrage? Well, I mean, I think it's the, you know, it's the frog in the boiling pot of water that, number one, um, things have been structured this way through both political parties over multiple decades. This is an effort that really started in the late 1960s. Um with you know the, the promotion of a new economic philosophy that was basically centered on tax cuts for the rich. Um, and we have seen, I mean, I think the American people are probably frankly exhausted, cynical, annoyed. Um, and you know, if, if we're asking a bunch of people who are working three jobs to you know, step up and save us. I, I just think that's a really big ask of people who are doing everything they can do to raise their families. And so that's one of the reasons for the patriotic millionaires is, you know, this is a small group of elites, but this is a group of elites who definitely recognize that their own enlightened self-interest is at risk if we do not fix the increasing level of society unrest that we are currently suffering from. And so we've organized this group of wealthy people around the country and now around the world, we've got a chapter in the UK and we've got this group of folks who signed this letter around Davos. The, the smart people, the smart money knows that this needs to be addressed and knows that it needs to be fixed. And so they're doing everything they can to do it. And just to touch on your report from the Patriotic Millionaires, proud to pay more and the the 260 millionaires and billionaires who signed a letter demanding the world leaders increase their taxes, uh, which was taken to uh, the recent Davos 
meeting, just to quickly go through some of the, the key points that your report finds. 75% of your respondents said they support the introduction of a 2% wealth tax on billionaires. 58% support the introduction of a 2% wealth tax for people with more than $10 million in earnings. 54% think that extreme wealth is a threat to democracy. 74% support higher taxes on wealth to help address the cost of living crisis and improve public services. 72% think that extreme wealth helps buy political influence. 70% think the economy should be stronger if we increase taxes on extreme wealth to invest in public services and national infrastructure. 66% of people with one million or more would support higher taxes on themselves if they were used to invest in public service and stronger national infrastructure. 57% believe that extreme wealth prevents others from improving their living standards and hinders social mobility. And 53% think that extreme wealth exacerbates climate change. So this is pretty extraordinary to think that you've got 260 millionaires and billionaires on the same page in terms of being enlightened. So can they weigh in on their greedy brethren? Uh, Can you name and shame? I mean, I mentioned Jamie Dimon saying, oh, Trump will be fine if he comes back, you know. Yeah, I mean, Jamie Dimon is 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 one of of many of them. A few Davoses ago, you may remember Michael Dell of computer fame stood up there and um and just sort of said, "Name a country where seventy percent tax rates is, have ever worked." And there was a Dutch historian on the panel named Rudger Bregman, and he said, "The United States, you idiot." You know, the United States has had 91% tax rates on the richest people in the country after World War II, and plenty of people made lots of money, um, and the country was able to pull itself and pull the world out of what had happened after World War II. These 91% tax rates, those are the kind of levels that we need to be going for, for the richest, richest, richest people in the country. Because here's the point. I don't think anyone, including our members, actually theoretically cares how much money someone has. The issue is that at a certain point, money no longer actually functions as money. It's not that you're getting a nicer dress or a better house or a better car. It actually turns into power. And we've reached the level of wealth concentration where a very, very tiny number of people have an extraordinary amount of power. And I got to tell you, you look at this, the system is what's wrong. But I will tell you, if you look at the personal attributes of the human beings who have this much money and this much power, these are not people that you want in charge of anything. Elon Musk is, when he is not stoned, he is arguably mentally ill. Okay. The idea that he, that he should have more power than other people in the United States of America is preposterous. And so that's what's under threat. What's under threat is self-determination from everyone else in the country, Republican, Democrat, independent. You simply cannot continue a society where we're in the process. We're going to have our first trillionaire pretty soon. Ian, okay, within the next decade. Right. It could be um, Musk himself. Yeah. Cannot handle that much power. (laughs) Well, Erica, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Ian, thank you so much. Nice to be with you.
Likewise, and again, I've been speaking with Erica Payne, who's the founder and president of the Patriotic Millionaires and the author of The Practical Progressive, How to Build a 21st Century Political Movement, and the co-author of Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.